0: Our next speaker is Christine Weil, who's from Mount Sinai, in New York, and she will discuss kidney, the kidney in HIV uh, infection beyond uh, HIV nephropathy. Christine?
1: Good morning. It's, uh, as Tripp said, it's a real pleasure to be in Chicago. I also came up early for the weekend and was actually fortunate enough to see the drawbridge on Michigan Avenue raised to let a boat through. Um, I just assumed this happened all the time and was wondering why not only the tourists, but also the, uh, the locals seemed to be jumping out of their cars, taking pictures. Everybody looked excited and happy. And I had looked at my husband and said, can you imagine if this happened in New York? It would be, uh, <laughs> you know, people instead of the cameras would be out you know, raising their fists and hollering. So it really has been a real pleasure to be here. Um, And I'm happy to follow Tripp's talk with the discussion of um, the kidney and HIV infection and really sort of follow up on some of the issues that were raised in terms of toxicity or potential toxicity of PrEP as well. I'm going to start with the case. Um, This is a 56-year-old African-American woman who showed up in the clinic um, with two weeks of – you can't hear? Should I just use a podium mic? So they, can, can folks hear in the back now? I'm just going to use the mic on the podium. Okay, great. I don't move too much anyway. So um, This is a 56-year-old African-American woman who showed up to see her primary care provider with about two weeks of nausea and vomiting. Um, of note, she'd been away for about three months um, and had missed an intermittent um, or an interim follow-up visit with her provider. Um, her past medical history, she had HIV-AIDS. Her last CD4 was around 300. Um, she had well-compensated hepatitis C cirrhosis. And uh, your medica- her medications, you can see here. Um, for the past week, she'd been taking intermittent ibuprofen um, for sort of just general malaise. These are her lab values. Um, These data actually were drawn in the clinic, um, and then she was called in um, with these results to come to the ER. So the the intern in the emergency room, I'm the nephrologist for our HIV clinic, so the intern, um, after seeing the patient in the ER, called me with these lab results to see what I thought thought should be done next. Um, So you can see this patient has a creatinine of 21, and at the time I was called, he said, you know, the patient's baseline creatinine is 1.4. Um, there's some acidosis. The rest of the electrolytes really don't look that exciting. Um, and he said there's a urinalysis it has got protein, ketones, and glucose. Um, just to rule out any sort of obstructive phenomenon, because of the nausea vomiting, there was a plain film that was normal, and that's all the information that we had. So just to sort of lay the lay of the land here, um, acute kidney injury is more common in patients with HIV infection than it is in the general population. Um, risk factors have been studied in a number of studies and really sort of to, it comes down to the fact that patients who have um, pre-existing chronic kidney disease are at increased risk, which makes some sense, um, as are patients with advanced HIV disease, whether that's measured by CD4 or viral load, um, and patients who are hepatitis C co-infected. And I could actually add another study that was recently done in the VA population to this list, but that really that study found very similar um, set of risk factors. Acute kidney injury is, is important um, in patients with HIV because, just like in the general population, the development of acute kidney injury is a bad prognostic marker. Um, we don't know whether kidney injury, acute kidney injury is, is causing these bad things, but it certainly is a, a, a sign of bad things to come. Um, these are data from... A uh, a study, again, a study in the VA population that showed that even early stages of acute kidney injury, just a a sort of asymptomatic rise in serum creatinine, was associated with an increased risk for cardiovascular events, for uh, subsequent uh, dialysis dependence, and for mortality. So the development of acute kidney injury is not insignificant, even when it's mild. What causes acute kidney injury in HIV? There there are very few studies that have looked at this well. Um, This is sort of an old study, but it's really one of the few where um, people went back and actually looked at individual cases to see what the cause was most likely to be. Um, This was a a cohort of about 750 patients who were followed prospectively in North Carolina. Um, About 10% of the population developed at least one episode of acute kidney injury, and some had more than one. Um, most of those were either um, either required hospitalization or occurred sort of as part of an um, intercurrent illness in hospitalization. And about half of the cases were attributed to an underlying infection. Um, most of these were AIDS-defining infections, and that goes back to that point of patients with advanced HIV infection are at a higher risk for development of this um, complication. And people presented in different ways. The vast majority were um, acute tubular necrosis, or ATN, which is probably the most common way that patients present with acute kidney injury in the hospital, regardless of their HIV status. Um, There were also some patients with uh, pre-renal presentations from GI side effects of medications, or, uh, sorry, GI side effects of their um, illness. Um, about a third of the cases in this series were attributed to drugs, um, and the most common drugs were not antiretroviral drugs. The most common drugs were uh, routinely administered antibacterial drugs like beta-lactams and aminoglycosides. Um, there were, this, this study was done in the early 2000s, and there was a little bit of overlap. There were some patients on indinavir, and people were, had just started to take tenofovir, so they had a sort of smattering of cases, both of those, but really it was, it was, those were not predominant. Um, There were some cases from radiocontrast, cases from NSAIDs, and not here, but also several cases from lithium. Um, And finally, about 10% of the cases were attributed to liver failure, and these were almost all in patients who had hepatitis C co-infection. So back to our case, this was just as a reminder, an HIV hep C co-infected patient with with fairly well-compensated cirrhosis who came in with nausea-vomiting for two weeks. Um, her medications you see there, she was on tenofovir, FTC-boosted um, lopinavir and ibuprofen for about a week. Um, labs that came back since the intern called me, um, there was a phosphorus of 5.2 um, and a urine sodium that was sent in the ER that was 60. So you guys now have a chance to, uh, to think about what is the most likely cause of acute kidney injury. I was in the back and had a little trouble. Can everybody back there see the ARS questions? Anybody can't? Great. So I think this is, a, this is actually a really good distribution of, of answers. Um, the largest number of you thought that this was likely to be tenofovir toxicity, um, and there were, I think, a third of you suggested prerenal, which is, I think, also a very good, important um, consideration in the differential um, certainly post-renal, we always have to consider the fact that a patient could be obstructed, um, although there's no reason, really particular reason, to suspect that in this individual. Patients with um, hepatitis C and cirrhosis um, are certainly at increased risk for hepatorenal syndrome, and I think that's important to consider. Um, I am going to touch on diabetic ketoacidosis because I think that's an important um, issue in the differential. This patient did not have known diabetes, Um and as you see, her uh, her serum oops, sorry I guess I can't go backwards her uh, her serum uh, glucose was normal. Um, even patients with diabetes don't necessarily have glycosuria unless they um, unless they have a, 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 enough serum glucose not to be able to to reabsorb it. So essentially, the only reason that a patient with normal uh, serum glucose should ever have uh, urine glucose is because the tubules aren't working. So. Glucose gets filtered, it's normally all essentially all reabsorbed by the proximal tubule. So, in a patient with the normal serum glucose, whether they're diabetic or not, um, the the presence of glycosuria in the urine is typically a sign of, of proximal tubular injury which is the classic presentation for tenofovir toxicity. Um, As Tripp mentioned, this is a fairly rare complication, somewhere between 1% to 2% of patients um, who are treated with tenofovir, HIV-infected patients who are treated with tenofovir, develop some clinically relevant toxicity. Um, Although we all know and we've seen multiple cross-sectional studies that have suggested that the prevalence of subclinical abnormalities. So if you look at um, very sensitive urine biomarkers, for example, if you look at the fractional excretion, the urinary excretion of phosphorus, you'll see um, much higher rates, 25-50% of patients who are tenofovir treated who have subclinical um, abnormalities in proximal tubular function. And the long-term or, you know, short-term clinical relevance of those findings is not known. Um, There are, have to date not been published any tenofovir-specific studies that have looked at the um, implications of those subclinical abnormalities on long-term outcomes. Um, there's one study that has looked at sort of broadly in a group of patients who are HIV-positive, some on tenofovir, some not, um, and, and that study did pick up a signal um, that maybe some of those uh, changes in proximal tubular function and some other markers of tubular injury might predict long-term outcomes. So I think there's more work to be done in that area because this potentially could be a way to predict patients who, you know, the 2% of patients who are going to go on to develop a problem because, as you guys are probably well aware, we don't have a good way of identifying those patients in advance now. This is actually, I think, a nice way to summarize the data that are out there to date. This was a uh, meta-analysis that was published a couple of years ago, and they essentially looked at all of the studies that have reported changes in estimated GFR in patients who are treated with tenofovir. Um, The line, uh, the vertical line is essentially zero, so that means no change. Um, And as you can see, all of the um, effects are to the left of that line, meaning that all of the studies, with the exception of one, I guess, all of the studies showed at least a trend towards a decline in gfr estimated gfr in patients who received tenofovir um the group of of uh Studies at the top are the randomized control trials, and, and as this audience is, I'm sure, well aware, the preclinical randomized control trials did not really show any statistically significant difference in renal outcomes between patients who received tenofovir and patients on, um, on alternative regimens. Um, the studies at the bottom are sort of the real-world cohort studies, and you can see that those studies were much more likely to show a difference. Um, and that's really where the, um, the pooled um, risk of this study was suggested that, that tenofovir is associated with a decline in GFR, at least in the real-world population. So, again, this is, these are very small declines. I mean, a, a decline of, of uh, 4 mLs per minute is not particularly exciting. I think most of us wouldn't really notice that, but it does suggest that there you know, is something here. If you suspect that a patient has tenofovir toxicity, I don't put this up here to say that we should be biopsying everybody or for you to look at the specific architecture of the proximal tubules, but um, just, to, just as a reminder that if you have patients where tenofovir toxicity is suspected and the case is not quite as um, exciting and flagrant as this case that I just presented, but you may have some opportunity to watch a patient, um, if you've got compelling reasons to keep the patient on tenofovir, their hepatitis B co-infected, for example, they don't have good alternative regimens, that's a patient where you actually might consider a kidney biopsy, and just, this is just to point out the kidney biopsy can be diagnostic, um, and it can also help to exclude other possibilities in these patients. Um, as I mentioned, the risk factors for tenofovir toxicity are un- unfortunately not really very well described. Uh, I think all of us would agree that unrecognized low GFR, so the frail, older patient that you start on tenofovir whose GFR actually may not be a good reflection, or the estimated GFR may not be a good reflection of their true kidney function, is probably at increased risk. Um, there have been, I think, controversial studies to suggest that there's, there may be some single nucleotide polymorphisms and transporters in the kidney. Um, these studies have not been um, really well validated in the larger studies, and, and I'm just going to touch briefly on why I think that might be. Um, And finally, there are data on some concomitant medications. And I think, um, you know, really any concomitant medication or concomitant illness that decreases your GFR and raises tenofovir levels um, certainly could have the same sort of risk as as starting out with a low GFR. I don't think there's much that's specific, although um, the boosted protease inhibitors, which are known, or some of which are known to raise tenofovir levels, are, are, I think, pretty clearly associated. This is, uh, not to scare everybody, first thing in the morning, this is not uh, renal physiology one-on-one, one, but just, a, uh, just, to, just to quickly point out, um, so this is a schematic of the proximal tubule. Um, this is the blood side. This is the urine side. That's the way things are supposed to go. So um, is just to point out, I think, the, the flaw in most of the studies that were done, because of the association with boosted protease inhibitor use and increased risk of tenofovir toxicity, most of the early studies focused on this transporter here, MRP2, Um, which is known to be inhibited by by ritonavir. So ritonavir doesn't just mess with the uh, cytochrome P450 system. It also affects this proximal tubular transporter. Unfortunately, this is um, this transporter that actually gets tenofovir out of these cells. Um, So there's not really a clear reason why the the, uh, polymorphisms in this um, transporter here would be relevant. Um, Also, just to point out, because some people have suggested that perhaps the the decline in estimated GFR that's seen with tenofovir may have something to do with inhibition of tubular secretion of creatinine, similar to what we see with trimethoprim sulfa, or more recently um, with the uh, investigational uh, boosting agent, uh, cobicistat, which has now uh, been suggested to interfere with tubular creatinine secretion. That does not appear to be the case with tenofovir. Um, Just to point out again, this is is another study that came out about uh, two years ago. This was data from the EuroSIDA cohort. This is a largely Caucasian cohort of HIV-infected patients followed in Europe. Um, And I think most of this audience is familiar with this study. Um, They found, they essentially looked at, at all comers, all antiretroviral agents, and whether exposure to those agents were associated with an increased risk of CKD, which was defined as a GFR less than 60 an estimated GFR less than 60, and in this group they found, um, I think, not not to anybody's huge surprise, that tenofovir and indenivir were both associated with a small um, increase in in risk. Um, This was the first study to implicate atazanavir, and I just want to mention that briefly. I don't think that we know enough about that, and it has has really not been as well validated in other studies, but there certainly is a signal, and there's, I think, a biologically plausible mechanism for adizanivir to potentially cause some indolent kidney injury in patients um, similar to what we saw with indenivir, although certainly less severe. Um, The interesting thing about that is that more recently, uh, a group from the uh, UCSF group published data from the VA hospital that really validated the findings of uriceta. Um, This study, I think probably most of this audience is familiar with this. This study got an incredible amount of press um, recently, uh, I think because it suggested, again, similar to what the uriceta uh, study showed, that the use of tenofovir, the cumulative exposure to to tenofovir was associated with an increased risk of um, chronic kidney disease, whether it was measured by a GFR of less than 60 or by um, a more rapid decline in GFR. And you can see that they actually looked um, at a number of groups, and this was a pretty robust finding um, in the sense that it, was, it, was, um, it, it didn't vary much by subgroup. The only two subgroups where uh, the it, it cumulative exposure to tenofovir didn't seem to increase risk Or patients with diabetes and patients with chronic kidney disease likely because those patients already had um, a higher baseline risk for developing these outcomes. Um, I think the other important thing to point out, um, particularly because patients get excited about this, is that all of these effect sizes are between one and one and a half. So these are not huge increases in risk. Um, And this is not, um, I think Tripp mentioned uh, recently that he's had patients call him saying, oh, my God, I now have a, you know, 36% um, risk because that's the way in the text of the patient that's the way the authors presented the data, 36% increased risk. Um, That's 36% above their baseline risk, which which is very low in most of these patients. So again, I think it's important to reassure your patients that even if this is a true finding and a robust finding, that it's a very small increase in risk over what's a very low baseline risk. This study, interestingly, I just mentioned this, this study also did uh, find some association with adizanivir and the more rapid decline in GFR, suggesting that perhaps that uracetus study was not um, completely misguided and that there may actually be some signal there for adizanivir, which I think is important to consider if you have a patient who's develop- developing some sort of kidney injury without another obvious cause. What's on the horizon for tenofovir toxicity? Well, I think it's important to consider whether tenofovir will have the same type of toxicity profile in patients who are HIV-uninfected. Certainly the data in the hepatitis B um, infected uh, cohorts has suggested um, really no signal in the uh, the randomized control trials, but as we might remember, that's the same thing that we saw with tenofovir. There wasn't really much in the pre-marketing studies. Um, What about HIV-uninfected people who are being treated for pre-exposure prophylaxis? Um, there actually is a lot of interest in the PrEP community in doing a pooled analysis of toxicity because, you know, uh, Tripp mentioned that there was a small increase in, um, in risk of, of elevated creatinine or as graded creatinine elevations in the um, IPREC study, but it didn't reach uh, statistical significance because the studies weren't powered to look at toxicity. So there's a lot of interest in doing pooled analysis, and I think that should be coming out in the next couple of years. Um, so hopefully we'll have more data on that. Um, I think this audience here is, is probably well aware. The FDA panel that met to discuss PrEP um, also discussed the use of a, um, a new pill the, uh, that combines tenofovir FTC with a, an investigational integrase inhibitor and with cobicistat, this uh, boosting agent. Um, this uh, agent has been uh, shown very clearly to cause a decline in estimated GFR that's related to blocking the tubular secretion of creatinine. And I think that, you know, potentially could be confusing. I think the other issue to raise is whether or not the new formulation of tenofovir that's being the new prodrug that's being developed and studied um, will actually have a decrease in toxicity. I think that remains to be seen. So I'm going to move there to a case. Um, This is a 43-year-old African-American woman that I saw with chronic kidney disease for, for many years. Um, she's HIV Hep C, co-infected. Her nadir CD4 was greater than 200. Um, she's got longstanding hypertension and type 2 diabetes, um, most, both of which are familial. She's on a suboptimal HIV regimen, which she had for many years declined to change, but has always been undetectable with a good uh, CD4. Um, she was taking amlodipine and lisinopril for blood pressure and insulin for her diabetes. Um, her blood pressure at the time of this, you know, sort of representative visit was elevated. You can see she's obese with a BMI of 31. Um, she has a creatinine of 6.2, an elevated serum phosphorus. She's got proteinuria. She's got glycosuria because her um, blood glucose is not well controlled. Um, she's got significant proteinuria. And as you can see, her CD4 is a, a close to 600, despite her suboptimal regimen. So does anybody here um, want to vote? I guess we'll ask you all to vote on what the most likely cause is of this patient's kidney disease. So great. I think a, a, a big chunk of you voted um, with me, which is that I need more information to know for sure. Um, the most common vote was diabetic nephropathy, which I think is the most likely diagnosis, um, and uh, some for hypertension, which is also very possible with long-standing disease. Um, Hep C-related GN, I think, is possible as well, although we don't have anything necessarily specifically to to support that, but she does also have hepatitis C. I actually think that's probably more likely than Hyvan, and I'll just talk briefly. This is my only slide on Hyvan. I think uh, probably this is not an ARS question, but has anybody here seen a case of Hyvan in the last year? Okay, so not that common um, i can 't give this talk without one slide on it, but certainly i don 't think I need more than that. Um, just as a review, um, Hivan is classically associated with advanced HIV disease um, there 's an incredibly strong racial uh, disparity, so this woman is of the right uh, racial background to be at risk for um, hyvan, and that 's based on genetic polymorph- or genetic uh, polymorphisms in genes on chromosome 22. Um, I've stopped saying which gene on chromosome 22 because the nephrology community can't quite decide on that, but it's very clear that this is a genetic susceptibility that puts blacks at increased risk for HIVAN. And currently the DHHS and the IAS USA guidelines would consider HIVAN, a diagnosis of HIVAN, to be an indication for heart regardless of, of any other indications. So I don't think it's likely to be the case in this patient who's got an undetectable viral load and CD4, but I guess it's possible because of her racial background and the fact that she's on suboptimal therapy, maybe there's something about that that puts her at increased risk. this is just a this slightly old slide from, patients, uh, from a study that looked at the distribution of the types of diseases that we found in patients who were biopsied. Um, and this actually suggests that about half of the cases that were biopsied were high band and that may be partly because that's the patients that were biopsying. Um, they also found a number of patients with immune complex disease, um, some membranous and MPGN that were attributed to hepatitis, viral co-infections, um, and uh, diabetes and hypertension made up this sort of purple chunk here. The cat um, interestingly, since then, there have been a number of studies that have suggested that the spectrum of chronic kidney disease is really changing. Um, there's even less and less classic Hyvan in all of these new studies. Um, more chronic uh, comorbid kidney diseases like diabetes and hypertension, and I suspect that if you were to do a biopsy series of you know, all of the patients in this hospital or in this audience of all of your patients who have chronic kidney disease, I suspect that we would find that diabetes and hypertension are the leading causes of chronic kidney disease in patients with HIV, just like they are in the general population in the U.S. Um, Kidney biopsy, I think, is underutilized for diagnosis, and this patient is a perfect example of of why that is. I mean, she could have had any of those diseases listed on the slide. Um, There's always been a perception that um, patients with HIV infection are at increased risk for complications for kidney disease, and I was glad that um, recently colleagues at uh, Johns Hopkins published data to suggest that that's not the case, although there may be some small increased risk in patients who are HIV hep C co-infected. Um, what are the recommendations for screening uh, for chronic kidney disease in patients with HIV? These guidelines are actually under revision um, as we speak, although they've been under revision for about two years, and unless we can stop arguing about how often or if ever to check the fractional excretion of phosphorus, you may never see them, but hopefully there will be new guidelines coming out soon. Um, essentially, guidelines now recommend that all patients are, are screened for kidney disease at the time of diagnosis based on using a creatinine-based GFR estimate, some measurement of urine protein. And then screening is recommended annually in high-risk patients. Um, Those would be patients who are black for the reasons that I've discussed, patients who are hep C co-infected, patients with advanced HIV disease, or patients who have other risk factors like diabetes and hypertension. So back to our case, this was a hep C co-infected patient with long-standing diabetes, hypertension, and stage 5 chronic kidney disease. Um, she did have a kidney biopsy, which showed advanced diabetic nephropathy and hypertensive vascular changes. The main reason for her kidney biopsy was because um, she was considering the possibility of um, of uh, changing her antiretroviral regimen, but really kind of needed something to push her that way. So she said if we showed high van on the biopsy she would change her regimen. I didn't think we were going to, but um, that was why she agreed to do it. Uh, how should you manage this patient's chronic kidney disease? So this is an ARS question Great. So I'm glad to see that almost all of you said all of the above. So um, just as in the general population, there are data that we extrapolate to patients with HIV because there's no reason to think they shouldn't be the same, um, that improved blood pressure, improve, improved glycemic control are um, effective measures for the, at least delaying the progression of chronic kidney disease. Um, Weight loss and smoking cessation are important, not just because they may um, improve the the natural history of uh, kidney disease, but also because these patients are at increased risk for cardiovascular disease. Um, And finally, I think nephrology referral is appropriate, largely at this point, even if she didn't need a diagnostic test um, for ESRD planning. Um, And I've essentially covered all that here. Again, the other thing that's always important is to reassess drug dosing and drug regimen in patients who have a declining GFR just to make sure that you aren't under or overdosing any of your medications. Um, The the epidemiology of kidney disease or in-stage renal disease in patients with HIV is interesting. Unfortunately, most of the data that we have available are limited to HIVAN. Um, But what I can say is that the prevalence, even of just HIVAN-related in-stage renal disease, the prevalence continues to increase, even though the incidence has stabilized with the introduction of um, of antiretroviral therapy. And I can say, as a nephrologist who sees dialysis patients, we actually have about 15% of our um, inner-city New York City um, dialysis unit as hiv Positive. So this is, you know, for nephrologists also an important issue. I'd like to ask this audience which of the following options for renal replacement to ARP should be considered with this patient. Um, should we be discussing hemodialysis, peritoneal dialysis, kidney transplant, um, none of the above or all of the above with this particular individual? <music> Great. Um, so uh, there, about a quarter of you said hemodialysis only, um, but most of you said all of the above, and I would agree with all of the above. The data on survival um, with, uh, with either peritoneal dialysis or hemodialysis in patients with uh, HIV suggests that they're pretty comparable, so it's reasonable to offer that to either option to your patient and let them choose based on their quality of life issues. Um, people have very strong preferences, I think, about which, which modality they would prefer. The, uh, again, it's important, I think this is one of the most important things to take home from here, if your patients decide to do um, hemodialysis, uh, clearly the data would be similar to the general population, that getting a fistula or even if they can't get a fistula, a graft is far superior to getting a tunneled catheter for dialysis. So early referral is really important for that because it takes at least eight weeks, but usually closer to six months for people to get a functioning fistula. So you can't wait till the last minute to do this or your patients will wind up with catheters. Um, kidney transplant is also an option in this population. These are the um, results of an NIH study that I'm sure um, folks here are very familiar with um, that looked at 150 HIV-positive kidney transplant recipients. Um, these were very stable patients. They were on stable and probably more optimal antiretroviral regimens than our particular patient was. So I think one requirement for her to be considered a kidney transplant patient would be to demonstrate that she was, that could tolerate a better regimen. Um, This study really showed acceptable patient and graft survival in HIV-positive participants who were very, that was sort of intermediate between the general transplant population and the outcomes among elderly population, uh, elderly transplant recipients. Um, There was no increase in opportunistic infections, which was obviously the most concerning, um, sort of the most concerning risk in this population. Um, And of note, somehow I seem to be missing a slide here, but of note I think probably the most important take-home point for for this audience is that there were incredibly significant drug-drug interactions. Um, So if you are seeing patients who are coming back to you after a kidney transplant or a liver transplant, Um, It's very important that if you're making changes in their antiretroviral regimen that you discuss those changes with their transplant um, nephrology team or with their nephrologist um, first because there can be huge swings in the doses or the trough levels of uh, ProGraph and um, and the two calcineurin inhibitors that are used for immunosuppression. Um, and really, patients have actually lost their, um, have lost their kidney transplant grafts because of changes in antiretroviral regimen. So if you take nothing away from this talk, I guess that would probably be it for the transplant folks. Um, so I'm going to stop there and see if there are any questions. I have exactly two seconds left, so I will uh, end there.
0: Thank you, Christine. Questions or people go to the microphones. You guys know there. How frequently should we be measuring creatinine in uh, patients on tenofovir?
1: That's a great question. I don't think this mic is on. Is it? Okay, great. So, um, oh, that's better. So how often should you be measuring creatinine in patients who are on tenofovir? I think probably most, how many people here are measuring quarterly labs in all of their patients? Or all, everybody on antiretroviral therapy? Okay, so I think quarterly is probably fine, um, unless you have a patient where you've noticed a trend in the creatinine that's going in the wrong direction. So, um, you know, there there are so many limitations in the estimates of GFR that I I do think it's probably smarter in patients who are taking tenofovir just to trend the creatinine um, once they're on it. I mean, obviously, for drug dosing, you need to estimate the GFR at first. But if you start to see a creatinine that's inching up each time, then I would be more vigilant in those patients. But I think, in general, quarterly testing is probably adequate.
0: What about proteinuria? How often should you be checking the urine?
1: Sure. Proteinuria, I mean, certainly for, if, if the question is specific to tenofovir, proteinuria is very nonspecific for tenofovir toxicity. That recent study that, um, that I mentioned did find um, an association between the cumulative exposure to tenofovir and proteinuria, but I think most of us aren't entirely sure what that means. Um, but but as, a, as a diagnostic test or a screening test, proteinuria is not very specific for tenofovir toxicity. I think if you're just looking for chronic kidney disease sort of in a screening sense in all of your patients, I think once a year is probably fine for proteinuria. Um, And any sort of assay is fine, whether it's a urine protein dipstick or a protein creatinine ratio. In diabetics, obviously, it should be an albumin to creatinine ratio because of the uh, diabetes
0: recommendations. Is tenofovir renal toxicity reversible?
1: In most cases, tenofovir, renal toxicity does appear to be at least mostly reversible. Um, I think if you've got advanced uh, fibrosis, so this this particular, for example, the case that I presented at the beginning um, was on dialysis for about two months um, and then eventually was able to stop dialysis. Her her creatinine never returned entirely to its baseline. So it's mostly tubular damage, at least in the early stages, but if you get to the point of developing interstitial fibrosis, then I, I think that part is not as reversible.
0: Can you comment on the renal disease in uh, pediatric patients with HIV infection?
1: Sure. So um, I don't see as many patients with um, as many children, but uh, certainly children are at risk for some of the same diseases. They're less likely to present, obviously, with um, diabetic or uh, hypertensive kidney disease than our adult patients. Um, they do probably, they're probably more susceptible to um, drug toxicity than, than our adult patients are. Um, and they are, you know, kids are at risk for a whole different um, range of kidney diseases, including minimal change disease, which is sort of that um, puffy Michelin man type disease that you used to see in children. So I think that, you know, screening for, um, for kidney disease in, in children should probably be pretty similar to adults, um, with the exception of the fact that they don't have the same comorbid risk factors as, as our adult population does.
0: Um. Would you you comment on the pathogenesis of HIV HIV, uh, nephropathy?
1: Sure. So the the pathogenesis of hiv is actually as well studied as as probably any kidney disease, Um, and it's pretty clear that it's related to direct HIV infection of the kidney um, or at least direct HIV gene expression in the kidney, um, which I guess could be coming some other way. But it it seems to be infection and most likely infection um, of the kidney itself. Um, it requires a genetically susceptible individual, so um, about 90% of, of people who have end-stage renal disease in this country that's attributed to HIVAN are African-American, and the other 10% are almost entirely Hispanic-American, um, likely with some African heritage as well. Um, so it really requires a susceptible host. It requires um, HIV infection of the kidney, and um, you know, there's probably some inflammatory component there as well.
0: Yeah, the, the genetic... Um, The recent finding that the genetic change is uh, resistance to trypanosomiasis. Yes. The people, it's like... uh, sickle cell malaria. Yeah,
1: no, it's a, ve- it's a very interesting story. For people who haven't read the, um, the articles by Genovese at all, it was published in Science in 2010, um, was the, the, pa- the second group of papers that, that looked at the genetic susceptibility to the hive, and it is a very interesting sort of elegant story about how um, this genetic mutation may have evolved in the African uh, population, and it really is sort of akin to the study of sickle cell, where if you are heterozygous for these risk alleles, you actually are protected from trypanosomiasis. Um, if you're homozygous for these risk alleles, then you're at increased risk for developing HIVAN or other forms of focal segmental glomerulosclerosis. fluorosis. So it is a very, it's actually a very worthwhile paper to read. So uh, there's
0: some... There are a number of questions about the tubular defect in tenofovir versus the glomerular change in the glomerular filtration. So um, I guess um, how frequent is the, well, you, you, you gave a percentage of 2% mm-hmm. developed tubular disease. Is that, that and it, do you know, does that occur immediately in the, somebody or is it time related?
1: Sure. So typically, I mean, the time course of tenofovir toxicity, most patients don't develop toxicity. It's not an early reaction. This is not a hypersensitivity-type reaction. This is typically with cumulative exposure, so it's rare to see it in the first six months, um, although patients who have been exposed to other um, similar nucleotides like sidofovir or adefivir in the past are probably at increased risk for developing it earlier. So the time course is usually later. Um, I think the more challenging patients, I mean, patients who show up with glycosuria and hypophosphatemia and, you know, at L- elevated serum creatinine are pretty straightforward and easy, and I think most of us, unless we had a real reason to hope it was something else, wouldn't even consider biopsying those patients, but would just change the regimen. Um, The more complicated patients are the patients who had just an isolated um, elevation in creatinine that doesn't have, you know, another obvious etiology. They're not diabetic. They're not hypertensive. They don't take other neprotoxic medications, and I think those are patients where a kidney biopsy might be helpful um, to help confirm the diagnosis.
0: How does, how does one go about referring someone for an HIV infected patient for transplant? Is that done by, is it? Is it easily done now? or um,
1: It depends on where you are. So I happen to be at a center that, um, that does transplants in HIV-positive individuals. My recommendation would be to send your patient uh, or to have the nephrologist that's seeing them send them to a center that's got experience with, with HIV-positive patients. I think because it's now been, um, you know, the data are, are, are strong and supportive. It's been published in the New England Journal. There are more centers that are doing it. Um, at this point, though, I would still prefer to have my patient transplanted by a group that's had experience with it Thank because there there's... are so many drug drug issues that are that are relevant
0: in Chicago. I know Northwestern and Rush both do transplants. Mm -hmm. And in fact, they were part of the study. And uh, so it can be done in Chicago. (laughs) Thank you very much, Christine.